Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. Thank you for joining us in the second hour. And uh, we're joined by our next guest. Uh, she is a commentator and a Middle East analyst, uh, global affairs analyst, and also she is a former senior associate at St. Anthony's College, Oxford University, and has a master's degree in international relations from Columbia University. Her name is Charmaine Narwani, and she's joining us on the live link. Thanks for joining us, Charmaine. I don't know if you heard the introduction. You know, we talked earlier about setting up this segment, and things are changing very quickly, and new stories are coming to the forefront each week. This week, you know, everything that I kind of had planned to talk with you about has a little bit been pushed slightly to the side. Iran is back up into the headlines, at least over here in the United States, with the implementation of the Iran nuclear deal, plus the uh, two U.S. naval boats that so supposedly strayed into Iranian waters uh, and the sailors that were returned in 24 hours. Uh, so this is what's going on. The United States is very divided politically uh, over anything Iranian. Okay, we'll get we'll talk about Syria, too. But just on this front, um, how is this drama looking from your side uh, of the pond? Um, with regards to Iran and the United States and the so-called uh, nuclear deal? Well, there's there's a split in the Middle East as well, um, as you can imagine. I mean, uh, Iran's quite happy about the state of affairs, um, and Saudi Arabia and Israel are not. So this is the um, divide we had going into the Vienna Agreement uh, last summer, and this is... What we what we're still with, unfortunately, on implementation day. Um, so you know, it depends where you're looking at. In, in Iran, I think, as we've seen from news reports, the um, the collective mood is um, very positive, very encouraging. Um, Iran has been under siege of sanctions for uh, far too long, and has really suffered as a nation and people individually, um, not just the government. So, you know, this is a real breakthrough, and a lot of people thought perhaps we'd never see this day. Of course, we have. Sanctions have been lifted, or at least the U.N. sanctions, um, and, uh, and, and it's a new day. But, of course, as this is happening, there's an escalation of activity against Iran on other fronts in the region, um, which I'm sure we're going to talk about um, more about in this show um, particularly uh, Saudi Arabia and hostile actions and hostile comments uh, that continue and worsen, it seems, as the weeks go on. And so we just also had the release of the uh, prisoners, uh, a, a few, quite a few American uh, prisoners that were being uh, held in Iran uh, for various reasons. And one of them was uh, Jason uh, Rezaian, who was a Washington Post journalist, who had been held for, I think it was 545 days or something like this. And, and so these, these, these so-called Americans are calling them hostages, but they're prison, they're in prisons, 
uh, or they're been arrested for, I, I would assume, espionage and things like this. And so they're saying, well, we have Iranians in U.S. jails. This is what I'm, I'm, I heard this morning on CNN. But, uh, but they're there. They're, they're real criminals. But the, really, when you look at the Iranians held there for violating sanctions, some of them in the United States. And so, again, this is the sort of dialectic uh, from the United States' point of view. Anything Iran does is bad. Anybody held there is a hostage, not a prisoner. Uh, and it, everything's nefarious with nefarious intent. And anything the U.S. does is justified and moral and correct by international law. So this is the dialectic. So, but I mean, what, what are they, what, what were the charges for, uh, Jason Resign from the Washington Post? Was it espionage? Do you know, I, I'm not exactly sure. I've read about his case over time, but I'm not sure that there's ever been a lot of detail included. Um, the Iranian judicial system has been tight-lipped over these things, um, perhaps because they don't control the international narrative and know that whatever they put out there will get twisted. Um, so they've, they've kept mum about a, a lot of these cases, um, and there are others that are go- ongoing, but my, my impression is that um, espionage, sabotage, a passing of information has has been uh, the mainstay of, of the charges for a lot of the Iranian Americans who who are, have been detained in Iran, but but not um, not all of them by any means. And I think we'll learn more now now that uh, now that we've seen a release. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and, and, and you're absolutely right, you know, <laughs> the discourse, hostages versus prisoners. I mean, just the way these uh, two naval boats were taken in, um, I mean, I think Iran probably did what any um, uh, nation abiding with international law would do. You, you know, you, you, you take in the boats, you detain um, those on the boats, you question them, you call up the, the, the you know, correct authorities and you try to get to the bottom of the matter um and what's been happening i mean the 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 official position on why those boats were even there is it's embarrassing i mean initially they said there were mechanical failures and then they drifted by mistake into those waters or the, the boat was in distress and and now you have um u.s officials actually stating to u.s news sources that um they misnavigated or they pushed in, they punched in wrong GPS numbers. Another explanation was they decided to take a shortcut through Iranian waters. Um, can you imagine if Iranian vessels were apprehended in U.S. waters? Or, or, and they and they said we're just taking a shortcut, and yeah, that wouldn't really fly very far, I don't think. Um, no, but, no. But, but it, it, the discourse is completely uh, warped. It's you know, it's totally warped, and. Uh, and so now with the with the nuclear deal, um, there are people in anything Iran does uh, is being labeled as a provocation. And then the, everyone's up in arms in the United States about the fact that there's going to be a hundred and something billion dollars uh, of frozen assets and funds released as a quid pro quo of this deal. And they're. Of course, the Republicans, neoconservatives are saying all this money is going to be used to fund terror around the world because here's another talking point. Iran is the number world's number one state sponsor of terror. Okay, no one ever questions this line, but this line's been used countless times by 
most U.S. politicians and news anchors and so-called experts that come on to, you know, the networks like CNN and so forth. So what is this, where does this charge derive the world's number one state sponsor of, of terror? I think it derives from a lot of conjecture and trying to blame um, through, through spinning, uh, the spinning of the media um, events, terror events around the world on Iran. You know, you connect some quick dots, you, you source um, uh, off-the-record officials, and um, you leak information, and all of a sudden there's a narrative that's being built, and nobody actually goes to check, did, did anybody say this on the record? Is anybody being charged? So Iran's used to this, but I, th- I think Iran's learned a few tricks um, through this whole process. Um, <clears throat> they've learned, for instance, that um, they, they no longer really have to support some of these narratives over the nuclear issue. One of the interesting things that came out of this, this deal after July is that you had a substantial part of the, the American body politic um, that started taking positions to defend Iran's behaviors, okay, because they did want this deal to go through. And that was something quite interesting. And I wrote an article about this calling, um, uh, calling it Teflon Iran because suddenly you had, you know, whether it's the IAEA or the United Nations or the White House or the State Department um, clarifying things for reporters that stood to benefit the Iranian side of the narrative. And this is something the Iranians could not be heard through the media fog ever, ever, ever. So um, after the deal was struck in, in, in Vienna, um, that changed. And Iran has a partner in, in establishing correct and factual narratives on what's going on in Iran. But of course, even that part of the U.S. body politic has to placate um, the other side from time to time, which is what we might be seeing with these new missile sanctions that I don't think are going to go very far. I mean, they, they target 11 individuals and if anything, um, help hardliners in Iran who will continue to bang on about the U.S. being an untrustworthy partner um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and undermine uh, reformists who, who are, you know, who've, who've pushed for this deal and actually um, made the deal happen. Um, there are always unintended consequences of U.S. foreign policy initiatives and American statements and American actions. Um, the Iranians are a patient lot. They know how to play the diplomatic game. They they still they stay within the confines of international law, and we're seeing them coming up trumps in almost every arena here in the Middle East. So, Sharmin Narwani, also her blog is the Middle East Shuffle. There's a link to her blog uh, on the show page. If you just click on her name, it'll go straight to, that's her, her main website, but she's also a syndicated columnist on a number of other news sources as well. Now, Sharmin, you, uh, you mentioned earlier, which I think is interesting, we're talking about the Iran deal. I, I looked at who was funding, there was hundreds I'm not exaggerating here, uh, upwards of $100 million in ad placements and ads produced in advance of the Iranian nuclear deal in America and the various PACs, super PACs, and interest groups that were paying for these ads, uh, a lot of them were Israeli-linked, okay? And uh, that doesn't surprise a lot of people. But a lot of the money as well for a lot of the other ads were coming from Saudi Arabian uh, funded super PACs. So isn't this odd or is this not so odd that we have the interests of Israel and Saudi Arabia 
completely converging now in, in this new uh, paradigm of power politics in the Middle East. Saudi Arabia, Israel, lockstep on so many things, especially to do with Iran and perhaps maybe you could say Syria as well? Uh, yeah, they've been in lockstep, um, notably so since around 2012 um, and into 2013. I think that's when people started to notice this convergence of interests and convergence of talking points um, between Saudi Arabia and Israel. They, of course, were the two um, biggest spoilers in the lead-up to the Iran nuclear deal. And anyone who thought they'd been felled after the deal was struck in Vienna um, was wrong. They they will come back. They will persist, as we're seeing now, um, trying to influence members of Congress, trying to sway perception uh, via uh, media articles uh, and op-heads and the like. And, you know, sure, I guess if you're telling me they're, they're placing ads, um, well, good for them. I think what they do, they, I understand their frustration. They've been marginalized in the Middle East. There was, you know, once a time where the U.S. would not make any major foreign policy decision in the region without going through um, and gaining the acceptance uh, and cooperation of these two allies. And that, the, both these countries were entirely bypassed um, when the U.S. went full force ahead on, the, on its plans to strike a nuclear agreement with Iran. Uh, and, and this is a first. I certainly, um, nothing I've really seen since James Baker, Secretary of State James Baker, challenged Israel, you know. Uh, and I don't think either countries have, have helped their own case. I mean, Netanyahu trying to um, elbow aside the President of the United States by speaking to Congress, and the Saudis going from one belligerent act to the next, you know, with the the execution of this uh, peaceful Shia sheikh in Saudi Arabia recently. Um, now there's a there's a court case. I think. Oh no, there's a there's a threat of a court case in the EU. Sorry, in, in the UK against um, British arms sales to Saudi Arabia. And I think we're going to see that in the United States too. You cannot sell by law uh, weapons to countries who are in um, uh, flagrant violation of human rights or have create. Uh, uh, carried out crimes against humanity, and as the Saudi invasion and bombardment of Yemen goes from their strength to strength, uh, I think we're going to see more of that. You know, I was just in the UK. I know a place you've lived for a long time, Patrick, over over the, the Christmas holidays, and uh, I was amazed at the amount of headlines bashing the Saudis and bashing Wahhabism. And, and I come back to a uh, U.S. congressional testimony, uh, I think it was Congressman Hank Johnson of Georgia, who very, very carefully and cleverly um, lined up the case that um, the Saudis are a major, the major sponsor of Wahhabism, which is sort of a, a feeding ideology for ISIS and Al-Qaeda and groups like that. And uh, nobody could argue with him. So I think we're going to see more and more of this. I think uh, Saudi Arabia is a threat to the national security of the United States of America, and yet it's uh, the recipient of the largest amount of U.S. weapons anywhere, you know, and uh, sophisticated 
sophisticated weaponry and weapons that are banned, like cluster munitions. You know, before Yemen kicked off, the Saudis, the the, the Washington had sold, I think, it was six six hundred forty million dollars worth of cluster bombs to um, to the Saudis. I mean, it's it's a banned weapon. Uh, so you know, I think we need to see more lawsuits. We need to see more lawfare. Um, the question is, who actually puts these cases forth in U.S. courts? Um, that's up to Americans to decide, and hopefully they will soon. Because I think it's a very easy way to bring down the system um, uh, or the existing uh, foreign policy system. In in Europe, uh, the Iranians sued over sanctions, went to the EU courts, and won because these things are violations of international law. And in in the case of um, selling weapons to the Saudis, Wahhabi Central, it's a violation of U.S. domestic law. And there, you know, I listened to Brett Stevens from uh, the Washington uh, Wall Street Journal, sorry, this morning, and he was on there with uh, with Fareed Fareed Zakaria on on CNN, and uh, very very tiptoeing around the Saudi issue, you know. So, Wall Street Journal, Rupert Murdoch giving it, uh, you know, a big strong. Uh, diatribe against the uh the ayatollahs in iran the the usual spiel you hear and but but then tiptoeing around the saudi thing because they're they're talking about oh this the the iranian uh islamic state it's it's uh it's not democratic uh it's a repressive regime their stated goal is to spread uh islamicization across the world etc and then in in the same breath uh having to carefully tiptoe around the fact that Saudi Arabia is not actually a democracy by any stretch of the imagination, but this is like becoming very obvious now, and I think that's interesting what you you said about the headlines in the UK. I know David Cameron was hoping to to seal the deal on the 120 uh, uh, typhoon, I think it was typhoons or tornado fighters, uh, BAE systems was lining up that deal that's a deal they've been working on since 2010 you know it's a it's a major thing and then that's put on the rocks they've got circo or someone's got some prison building deals as well uh in saudi arabia that's been put on the rocks because of uh threats of executing and beheading and crucifying a young young boy uh 17 year old boy so but but here's my question to you uh sheikh nimr al-numr being executed, certainly Saudi Arabia would know this is going to elicit a reaction. Okay, so my question is: does it, This reminds me a lot of of nineteen fourteen uh, Franz Ferdinand, uh, the assassination in in Serbia, the the chain of events which uh, unfolded after that, the cascading, uh, the the alliances lining up against each other. We're in a similar situation, maybe not exactly the same, but in terms of, you know, this alliance-based foreign policy, you know, we have blocks like NATO, uh, Saudi Arabia, or the anti-Shiite bloc, which is Israel and Saudi Arabia and Qatar and the GCC versus Iran versus Syria. Um, how much of, do you think this was a staged provocation by the Saudis or are they just that stupid? I think one thing um, that's become very, very apparent is, other than the fact that these two countries are now, the Saudis and Israelis are colluding very closely on regional objectives, 
uh, is that uh, both countries seem to operate within a bubble, a perception bubble, a narrative bubble, one that's been um, partly of their own making, of their own construct. Um, but they're they're deep in that bubble, and I don't think they can see, <laughs> um, genuinely see the ramifications of their actions, or perhaps being in this bubble um, prevents them from seeing, um, no, prevents them from understanding that not everyone will react the way they would react. So um, when the Saudis escalated by killing, uh, executing Sheikh Nimr they probably expected the Iranians to act um, impetuously, rashly, um, but that's not how the Iranians operate. The Saudis, anybody can study that. The Iranians don't react that way. The Saudis did this. What? For what reason? It made them look bad. It drew a lot of negative Western press their way, and the Iranians didn't do anything. I mean, even the storming of the Saudi embassy was not by government officials, <laughs> Um, or sort of, uh, you know, official entities. It was by people, and the Iranian government came out and condemned it and safeguarded the embassy, acted like a rational state uh, within international law, etc., etc. So, you know, I, I've i been worried about these Saudi escalations since 2012, um, the summer of 2012 when Damascus blew up, you know, a series of bombings and terror attacks, and we can see, we can see here in Lebanon, every time the Saudi side, if you will, in this region, suffers a setback, we have bombs in Lebanon. The Saudis react this way. Mm-hmm. They don't understand that this is not how normal states react. Um, the other thing is, you know, the more we get to see these things about Saudi Arabia and Israel, the more we're going to distance ourselves. I'm talking about in the West. We're, the more we're going to have to distance ourselves from these countries. And I frankly think the Obama strategy of, um, you know, um, achieving a ne- nuclear agreement with Iran was so that the U.S. and Iran could operate in the same theaters in this re- region without being goaded into confrontation themselves. So this deal, in effect, allows the U.S. and Iran to both be operating within countries like Syria. Now, this is from the American perspective, not from the Iranian one to be operating in Syria and to be operating in Iraq, and this being perfectly legitimate to do so, whereas before the Iran deal, that would not be the case. Um, mm-hmm. So so I think, I think, you know, the more ridiculous Saudi and Israeli actions become, um, and they always seem to have a new one, right? They pull out of their hats, and you go, I can't believe they're doing this. Uh, mm-hmm. The more their traditional allies draw away from them, um, and and start hedging their bets. I think moving closer to Iran was uh, Washington looking to hedge its bets in the region because they knew at some point they could not control the jihadi genie they let out of the bottle uh, by supporting groups and militants that were obviously um, of common ideology with al-Qaeda and other extremists like that. Um, and they, they knew that they would not put ground troops in there. The U.S. military is absolutely against that. Um, they knew they could not count on their traditional allies, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, uh, uh, other Gulf states, uh, Persian Gulf states, Israel, and Turkey, because these were countries that were, um, uh, you know, absolutely behind the growth of militancy and extremism in Syria. Uh, so they, they needed to look for other partners um, or potential partners in the region 
countries and groups that really wanted to stem the the jihadi uh, expansion through Syria, Iraq, and in other quarters in in, uh, in the Levant and the Persian Gulf. Um, and so they look to Iran as a possibility. Uh, it's not that Iran and the U.S. are going to be partners anytime soon, but I think um, they have in, in this, in stemming the jihadi tide, uh, common goals and will work together with groups even like Hezbollah. You know, at one point early last year, a Hezbollah official said to me, the U.S. is now going directly to their adversaries instead of going through their allies. Um, and... Mm. That's interesting so, development. All kinds of dialogue and behind the scene, behind the scene um, uh, discussions, direct ones, I suspect as well, are going on between the U.S. and its traditional foes in this region because, you know, it's game over. This idea for regime change got out of hand, which happens to every single U.S. foreign policy adventure in the Middle East. And <clears throat> the turning point, though, I think people should know, came in 2012 when the U.S., went to Iran to an offer and dangled in front of them a series of incentives, by the way, during the Ahmadinejad government, okay, to get them to start talking about nuclear negotiations. Um, so so it, it really is the U.S. that's uh, started to shift its positions. And the Saudis and Israelis are in great trouble because they are in this bubble. They cannot see that um, they're losing ground. They're, they're, they're losing um, political ground. They're, they're losing ground on battlefields. Um, <clears throat> they're, they're losing the narrative ground which they always count on, and they're losing ground in the capitals of their, their major Western allies. Um, for Iran, they don't need to do anything. They're sitting back and enjoying it. And uh, and so uh, we're still going to have a, a bit of an issue, uh, money that's flowing from Saudi Arabia and from Israel uh, to fund the political insurgency in America uh, on the right wing side uh, to just flatly opposing anything, any kind of detente, any diplomacy, any bilateral negotiations. It's all going to get resisted constantly. This seems to be, uh, the, has been the position of, of Israel in Saudi Arabia in terms of manipulating U.S. internal politics, even backing presidential candidates or running negative ads against certain candidates who aren't hawkish enough, for instance. Um, do you think that would eventually that will eventually change because they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars doing this? Yeah, I I have to say I'm not worried about this at all. You know, bring on the hawks. What are they going to do? What is a Republican hawk or a Democratic hawk, Hillary Clinton, for instance? Um, what are they going to do exactly? I mean, we've collectively seen a redressing of the global balance of power in these last few years. A huge um, consequence of American actions in Syria. You you know, by pushing Syria too hard, um, they drew in the BRICS, okay? And now the BRICS have put their arms collectively around, and I'm talking specifically Russia and China, um, have put their arms around U.S.'s traditional foes in that region. And we've seen ourselves moving in the last three years away from a unipolar world. It's a multilateral world. What U.S. president um, could get the U.S. military to put boots on the ground anymore? Has anyone checked in with that institution lately? There's no interest. I mean, the U.S. soldiers have bore the brunt of the silly civilian Washington misadventures in this region. Okay, they've lost legs and arms, um, have killed themselves, suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, 
Um, they've seen the stuff up close, and I, I don't think, and I think this is a great um, part of why the U.S. military does not subscribe to these adventures any longer and prevented um, the civilian administration from from ratcheting up things in on 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 Syria. Uh, so you know what Republican candidate can move the U.S. military to put its boots on the grounds in the Middle East? And who? What international body is going to allow this any longer? I mean, when when the Chinese and Russians twice vetoed resolutions on Syria, um, we knew that it was the end of an era. Uh, of course, the Americans and a, a right wing president can. Um, go it himself, but um, even then, I mean, think about it, George W. Bush needed a coalition, even if it was a fig leaf of a coalition, he needed that to create the um, sense that there was international consensus on this. There will be no international consensus on attacking countries in the Middle East. That that era is over, so I'm not worried. Let them spend their money, let them waste their money. Um, I tell you, for a change, people um, in the Iran camp or um, uh, objective governments in the Middle East that would like to seek independence and self-determination are looking at the U.S. and realizing there's nothing coming out of there. There's nothing left. You know, I think this is why a certain segment of the American population was so outraged by those pictures of um, the Navy Marines with their, you know, on their knees, the hands on their heads. Um, how dare Americans surrender? What Do Americans not bleed? I, I really think the relationship between action and consequence has been sort of rubbed out in the American psyche. You do something, something's going to happen back to you. Um, fortunately, they were caught by um, the rational uh, Iranian Coast Guard or whoever, military forces, um, and brought in and questioned and fed and released. You know, if you if you saw Americans in that position in Saudi Arabia, they'd likely to be beheaded. Um, so I'm not too worried, and a lot of people in this region have stopped worrying about America's reactions, whether there's a um, right-wing president or not. Hopefully Americans will not vote in a right-wing president. The U.S. has grown its economy um, over the last century because of foreign policy, but when the whole world becomes hostile to you, you can't grow economy anymore. It's time to examine diplomacy, bring in some career specialists, some area specialists, real career diplomats instead of the ideologues, and set things right again because um, I don't think the U.S. has an economic future uh, the way it sort of um, takes the stick approach to a lot of countries and a lot of events going on in the world. Um, but, you know, uh, you, you need the candidates, don't you, though, for Americans to vote in? What are you looking at on the, in the Republican field right now? Is it Donald Trump still ahead of the pack? Yeah, Donald, Donald Trump's ahead, but uh, as I predicted before Christmas, I said don't count out George Bush or Jeb Bush, as, as, as he's known, John Ellis Bush. <laughs> And he's got the endorsements of Lindsey Graham and probably uh, 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 John McCain uh, this week, it looks like. So they're resuscitating that bush, trying to prop him up in advance of the, the primaries. Um, so it's far from over, although yeah, Donald, yeah. Donald, Donald Trump is very much in the lead. Um, but so, but uh, American... You know, Patrick, I think I can deal with the Donald Trump over here in the region. You know, um, they, they he... Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, it's a mixed bag um, with uh, with the Donald. Um, 
So no, how to move off a trajectory once it's on it. You know, it's like a dinosaur almost. Once it's on a path, it doesn't know how to veer from it um, or, or or move backward. So so perhaps Donald Trump will offer that at least. I'm more worried about Hillary Clinton becoming president because she really is a warmonger. Um, of the first degree, I, I nobody nobody wants her around here. I agree with you on that. Yeah, it's more of the same. It's, Hillary Clinton will be a continuation of uh, everything nation building uh, project that's been uh, going on for the last uh, five decades. But uh, for in America, it's more rule by crisis. And my biggest fear is that you know uh, a domestic so called domestic terror event is what will eventually be used to drive. U.S. foreign policy in the absence of any will to do anything, as as you pointed out, like before. But um, but but I always said that America's real power internationally is derived from its being perceived as an honest broker. And once you lose that mantle as being an honest broker by the the world looking at you in that role, once you've lost that, that's where your power is. And I think there's almost this resistance in Washington to accept that, that that's a fact, that that is your power. It's it's more than guns, more than bombs. It's the perception that you are an on, the honest broker. And so that's, being, that's shifting away from the U.S. now and maybe more towards even Russia, for instance. Or even China, maybe. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, it's it's very true. But, you know, I would say in terms of the U.S. being an honest broker, nobody here has ever thought that. Nobody. I mean, who in the Middle East except a few American proxy governments have ever used that phrase? I mean, okay, it has been used here, but it, you, this is the power of the narrative. You say it often enough, it sticks. Yeah. Um, but nobody really believes the U.S. is an honest broker, and it is you're absolutely right. It is telling that uh, countries that would naturally perhaps be hostile to the Russians um, because they're close allies of the United States are now examining um, opening up diplomatic and economic and other channels uh, more ferociously with the Russians. Um, case in point is the Jordanians. You know, they've seen... They've seen the Russians far more in this past year than they've seen the Americans, possibly. Um, and I think the Russians are pr- pr- providing them with nuclear plants, etc. So there, there are a lot of projects going on in the region. And, of course, the Chinese have been there well before everyone um, with their economic plans, you know. And when there's pushback from, uh, from ver- nationals of countries, um, because, remember, the Chinese were bringing their own workers at some point, uh, other than, you know, rather than hiring locally, the Chinese said, fair enough, that's, that's a fair point, now we will hire locally. They're making headway in ways that nations do t- typically make headway, you know, you soft power. Soft power, it's that simple. The stick doesn't work any longer. And I think we're all watching more carefully somehow, you know. Um, there's nothing more. You, you can't declare war unless you go through the U.N. Security Council, and that's just not going to happen anymore. So um, I think Washington needs to take a few lessons in soft power. Um, but there's too much arrogance there. I'm not sure they can do it. You need a new kind of thinking, and I think if you had the right kind of president, um, it could be top-down, you know, get rid of the ideologues, but you need someone who is really willing to change a lot and doesn't really care about the insults yeah, I'm not sure if the, thrown their I'm, way. Which is not, kind of why I strangely like Donald Trump, you know, because I think he's one person who could brush off a lot of this stuff. The, the rest are kind of insiders, you know? 
Yeah, yo, I I agree with you on that. You know, so maybe it's a maybe the Caesar, the first uh, Trump will be the first in in a, in a long line of Caesars uh, as the Republic shifts to uh, to the, uh, the 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 next generation of Rome. But um, so, but moving over to Syria, okay, uh, mm. is it is it the case that the, uh, the what what is essentially the NATO GCC? Uh, uh, alliance or cartel or whatever you want to call it, are they still hell bent on carving out a safe zone in northern Syria? And if so, what sort of a disaster would that be if they're able to pull that off? Well, no. I mean, you can't always go by what people say, of course. Um, and this is, I think, the difficult being an analyst in the, in the region. People lie all the time. Officials lie all the time. Um, so, you know, the U.S. has said that a safe zone, uh, the creation of a safe zone in northern Syria is off the table. Um, and uh, the U.S. military is has also taken it off the table. That could change because, like we always say here in the Middle East, one event can change the trajectory entirely. Um, in this region. So um, I don't see that happening. I think there is a great deal of discomfort within NATO towards Turkey. I think the Russians outing publicly um, the, uh, the oil trade between ISIL and Turkey, the oil trade, of course, being the source of a great, um, a great percentage of ISIS's funding, and financing. Um, once they outed that, it, there was, I mean, it was just too embarrassing. There are pictures. You can't, a picture's worth a thousand words. There it was, um, mile-long convoys of trucks heading um, into Turkey to sell ISIS oil. So, uh, you know, Turkey's fallen out of favor a bit. Um, there's also the fact that, you know, those, those, the hundreds of thousands of refugees that, fl- uh, that flooded into Europe late last year, was they did not come from Syria. They came from Turkey. You know, mm-hmm. a good number of them were, were Syrian, clearly, but they were living in Turkey, so they were not escaping war zones. How suddenly did boat fares drop substantially? How suddenly did these these waterways open to, you know, hundreds and thousands of these boats and refugees coming over to Europe? The Turks encouraged this because now they're sitting pretty again in terms of their um, negotiations on entrance into the EU with EU countries because um, the EU really needs Turkey to turn off the spigot. Um, so I think there isn't a convergence of interests where there was between these various NATO allies to create a safe zone in um in northern Syria, um, you know, let's not forget the U.S. military moved Patriot missiles from that border. You know, um, they said no big deal. It was just a, 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 a normal thing. But, of course, most analysts in this region um, saw it as a real slap in the face of the Turks. Um, uh, so, so no, I, I don't see that happening at all. And a lot has shifted. Again, post the uh, nuclear deal with Iran, it has opened up the um, ability for the Americans to now operate militarily in the same um, military theaters as the Iranians, uh, which means both in Iraq and Syria, uh, the two countries can operate without getting to confrontation. So in a way, there are two kinds of battles going on in these countries, both currently on the same page, though not exactly. Um, The U.S. wants to bolster its plans of 
uh, a, a divided Syria and a divided Iraq. By the way, the Americans never say they want a divided Iraq, but it's very clearly um, they're, all their actions suggest they do. So it, uh, the, this will bolster their – the Americans want to bolster their plans of creating at the end of the, the game a divided Iraq and a divided Syria – the Iranians, the Russians, etc., do not want to see this. And by the way, nationals, most nationals of those two countries. Um, so, you know, on, on a larger picture, they, uh, of, of defeating and pushing back um, and besieging extremists, not just ISIS, but Al-Qaeda, not just Al-Qaeda, but also Ahrar al-Sham and other extremist groups. Um, they're on the same page in other uh, geostrategic issues. They are absolutely not which is why we will not see a convergence of interests um, between Iran and the U.S. and an improvement in the relationship anytime soon. Um, but in these areas, we're actually seeing a divergence of interests from, uh, w- within NATO. Okay, so Turkey on one side and uh, a great number of other NATO partners on, on another side, a shifting side, a side that's not quite clear. And, and you've been on the ground. Where will the Americans land on this? Um, it's Sorry, we got a little breakup on the call. Sorry. Little breakup on the call, but um, just quickly before we get uh, to the end of the segment, you, you've been on the ground uh, in Syria, multiple trips and fact finding, message reporting, etc. How difficult is it going to be for Syria to come back to, to put Syria back together? as a country, because it's extremely fractured right now. It's been a, a horrific five years uh, for the yeah. people of Syria and, and the diverse people of Syria, many different uh, tribes, many different religions, ethnic groups. How hard is it going to be to bring the country? Is this a long process? Is this going to take 10, 15, 20 years? Will it, will it actually take place? How do you see it? I, I have spent a lot of time in Syria um, over the course of this conflict, um, but and I, I will tell you, I am a rare optimist on Syria. I believe Syria will be whole again, um, entirely, every bit of its territory. Um, I, I, I do believe, and I, I believe that is a physical thing. Militarily, you take back territory, you own it, it will be one nation again, okay? Um, on the political side, not as easy, right? Because there have been these divisions, sectarian ethnic, tribal, whatever, and uh, certain groups have found aspirations in this uh, in this crisis. Uh, so, you know, like the Kurds, for instance, the Druze in the south, you know, people who have taken up arms to defend themselves were not defended um, by the, the Syrian army because the Syrian army couldn't go into these areas so easily or they had um, more, more, um, more important fighting to do in larger um, hubs elsewhere in Syria. So um, those kind of divisions will take longer to heal. Um, I do think, however, if you do have the physical boundaries, you can work on the the political boundaries. And there may be a case where uh, the government, uh, the Syrian government moving future, whether it's under Bashar al-Assad or a future Syrian president elected in um, Syrian-held elections, um, may decide to... um, allow for further autonomy in certain areas, which isn't a bad thing. We're looking at this in the United States, you know, so so why not elsewhere? And, I, I, you know, I think beyond Syria also, we're going to see some big shifts in the concept of the nation state and what that means. And I'm not just talking about the Middle East. I'm definitely talking about Europe as well. Um, and I know the CIA did a report about two years ago. They, they do these five-year trend reportings 
Um, and they said one of the things was the breakup of states into sort of autonomous areas. And I don't mean physical breakup of states necessarily, but uh, political breakup of states. So, um, you know, uh, Syria has a long road ahead, but I do think um, uh, the, the current status on the ground suggests to us that a military solution may be closer than we think. The rest of it will be gained through political process, hopefully elections at the end of that, and then the healing process begins. But don't forget, throughout this conflict, reconciliation events have been going on locally, sponsored by local players, sponsored by the Syrian government, sometimes by rebels. You know, they've been going on throughout Syria. So the the, the foundations for reconciliation are already in Syria. Um, the, the country just needs some stability to... Um, you know, enjoy and and discover those processes more fully in the, the next few years. Yeah, and I've also heard, uh, which is somewhat encouraging, that uh, if there were certain sectarian divides before the conflict, that that the conflict has actually brought a lot of Syrians together, uh, whether they be a Sunni or Shiite or whatnot. Um, have drawn them together under kind of the identity of being Syrian, uh, trying to preserve their country and uh, improve relations uh, between groups. Is that something that you've seen? Well, I, what's interesting, there's, well, I mean, yeah, uh, no, because it's so overtly um, brought barriers down among sects and among religions um, on one hand. On the other hand, I think regular Syrians who um, weren't very politicized, uh, and uh, but but weren't sectarian either. Just were not very politicized. You see this, you know, the the young people, the young Syrians on Twitter and Facebook today. These people who were you know out at restaurants and cafes and parties before um, are are have become nationalists. You know, the threat of the collapse of the nation state brought together people not just in Syria, but also in Egypt, we see, behind nationalist slogans, you know. And so it's kind of revived a significant um, segment of the population, um, made them think about country, made them think about governance. So I think when we come out of this, we're going to see a different kind of Syria. It's inevitable. But, um, I, you know, I, I, I do think the sectarian things are part of the healing process and the interreligious um, things are going to be part of the healing process that we, you know, I think we have a few, quite a few years ahead. Well, there's still, yeah, there's still a lot more, a lot more that's going to unfold, I think, uh, with this story and be very interesting. But yes, big changes are, are afoot. You're absolutely correct there. But um, thank you very much, Sharmin, for your time. And uh, I think the connection was not too bad. Uh, but, uh, yeah, thank you very much for your time and, uh, and your work as well. And if anyone's interested in seeing, uh, Charmin's work, go to Middle East Shuffle. Uh, it's one of probably Mid-East. the best. What's that? It's Mid East Shuffle. Everyone gets that wrong. <laughs> oh, it's Mid East Shuffle. Okay. Well, we've got a link to it on our show page. Um, so go ahead and check that out. Uh, great work. Uh, it's a good, it's a go-to place, uh, to get a lot of up-to-date information on a lot of things. Are you going to be in, uh, Vienna or Geneva to cover any of those peace negotiations coming up? No, I think, I think there's a lot of process left in that. I'm just dying to find out who they put on the terrorist list, you know, after sort of backing these guys up for, you know, the last five years. Who are they actually going to call out? So I'm going to watch it for a while, and when it picks up and looks like there's actually something behind this process, 
that's when I think I'll probably check it out. But thanks, Patrick, for having me on. It was a pleasure, really. No, our pleasure. Thank you so much. That's uh, Charmaine Arwani. Uh, you see her work there at the show page. We'll hopefully uh, speak to her in, in the future as well. There's a lot going on uh, in the region in some of these areas. And um, we're going to try to connect our next guest after the break, Mr. Richie Allen from the United Kingdom. We'll be right back after these commercial messages. I'm your host, Patrick Engs, and this is the Sunday Wire. Stay right there. Fool me once. Shame on, shame on you. It fooled me. We can't get fooled again. And one of the things that I've used on the Google is uh, to pull up maps. I have filters on internets. I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. Tune in Sundays at noon Eastern Time or 9 a.m. Pacific Time for the Sunday Wire for three hours of action-packed talk radio on 21stCenturyWire.com and alternatecurrentradio.com. 